Well, President, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for those very kind words of introduction. It is, as ever, a tremendous privilege to be invited to address the Royal Aeronautical Society this evening. Throughout the RAF's history, the Royal Aeronautical Society and its members have been at the RAF's side, supporting the development of aviation, inspiring people through the thrill of flight, promoting the science and technology that have taken British military and civil aerospace high into the atmosphere and beyond. I know that the relationship between the Society and the Royal Air Force will continue to be strong and will continue to prosper into the future. Now, I do not need to remind this audience that in just four days' time, on the 1st of April, the Royal Air Force will be 100 years old. That day in 1918 was a moment that a vision was brought to life, a vision that air power was fundamentally changing warfare, a vision that air power could only be exploited fully within a unified and independent air service. An air service, the Royal Air Force, determined to stay at the cutting edge of technology and to have the highly skilled, motivated and trained people to make that happen at that moment and into the future. A vision which history also makes clear owed much to a pressing need to offer a more coherent and consistent connection between the armed forces and the UK's rapidly growing aviation industry. A vision delivered by people who understood the need to establish an air force which could help deliver victory in the First World War, but also an air force which had the beliefs, ethos, and institutions to survive and flourish after the war. The rich legacy of that vision and those people in 1918 is the one that we, today's Royal Air Force, proudly inherit. Although the title of my talk is the RAF at 100, it pays to linger a little longer on 1918, year zero, if you like. Because talk about vision is one thing, but the hard, practical realities of war are another. There were many, not all of them disinterested observers, it has to be said, who counseled at the time that the idea of an independent air force might be right, but surely such organisational upheaval in the midst of wartime could not be justified. Those concerns were perhaps amplified during the days leading up to the 1st of April, as the Allies fought desperately to halt the German Spring Offensive of 1918. The RAF was born in the midst of that carnage and of those battles, which claimed the lives of 178,000 British and Commonwealth servicemen, including my grandmother's brother, Private Charles Menzies of the Seaforth Highlanders, who died almost exactly 100 years ago today, aged just 19. The RAF's losses were, were high in those battles as well, but it won control of the air, its primary purpose then as it is now. It was immediately able to confound those who said that major organisational change in the middle of a war would disrupt outputs. Perhaps a lesson there for those in all of our organisations who seemingly support change, but just not yet. The formation of the RAF was not about some theoretical principle. It was about trying to do warfare better and win the war. 
It equally confounded those who had said that the independent air arm would neglect the land battle. By con by, it did that by constantly harrying and interdicting German resupply columns. The RAF has always been inherently joined. Our very origins are in people from the Royal Navy and the, the Army. It's true that we're sometimes required to conduct independent air operations, but the RAF knows that its operating environment is all-pervasive and its breadth of capabilities fundamental to the success of any military endeavour, whether that be in the air, on land, or at sea. But what did it actually mean to members of the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service 100 years ago when their amalgamation was nigh? A visit I paid to the Royal Air Force Museum offered some insight from some primary sources. Perhaps the reality is best summed up by a letter from a young pilot in the Royal Flying Corps. Dear mother, he said, I am safe and well. It's what parents want to hear, I think. It seems that I'm about to be transferred to the Royal Air Force, this new thing. I don't think it will make much difference to what I do, except that I shall probably have to buy a new uniform, which I can't afford, and which makes it all a terrible bore. But beyond the prosaic lies the heroic. On this very day, the 27th of March, exactly 100 years ago, Second Lieutenant Alan McLeod, a 19-year-old Canadian, was serving with Number 2 Squadron, my old squadron. Together with his observer, McLeod was attacking enemy ground formations when he was bounced by eight enemy triplanes. By skillful manoeuvring, he enabled his observer, Lieutenant Hammond, to shoot three of them down. By this time, McLeod had received five wounds and a bullet had penetrated his petrol tank and set the machine on fire. So he then climbed out onto the left lower wing, controlling his machine from the side of the fuselage, and by side-sipping steeply, kept the flames to one side, thus enabling the observer to continue firing until they reached the ground. Hammond had been wounded six times, and McLeod, notwithstanding his own wounds, dragged him away from the burning wreckage under heavy machine gun fire from the enemy's lines. He persevered until he had placed Hammond in comparative safety before collapsing from exhaustion and loss of blood. Awarded the Victoria Cross for these conspicuous acts of gallantry, McLeod lived to see the creation of the Royal Air Force, but died of his wounds eight months later. Hammond, whose life he saved, survived the war. Those such as Trenchard, Henderson and Sykes are widely recognised as the founders of the Royal Air Force through their titanic organisational efforts and leadership in 1917 and 1918. But I rather think that people like Alan McLeod have an equally strong claim to be regarded as founders of the RAF. His actions 100 years ago today and those of countless of his colleagues epitomise the spirit and set the tradition that would be so richly emulated by his successors over the following century. Like flying officer John Cruikshank, Victoria Cross, who in 1944 pressed home a U-boat attack and recovered his aircraft to base despite being wounded in 72 places. Or section officer Noor Inayat Khan, George Cross, Women's Auxiliary Air Force, an SOE wireless operator in France, captured and executed in Dachau. Or Flight Lieutenant Michelle Goodman, Distinguished Flying Cross, Maryland pilot, rescuing injured soldiers under fire in Iraq. 
or squad leader Roger Cruikshank, distinguished flying cross, typhoon pilot, for repeatedly pressing home attacks against Daesh positions last year. Let me now move forward from year zero, zero towards year 100 in some brief 25-year hops. By 1943, the RAF was over a million strong with nearly 500 squadrons and in the midst of a world war which saw the fullest possible expression of the vision of those early Air Force pioneers. The RAF took the opportunity of its 25th anniversary to offer Prime Minister Winston Churchill the highly unusual compliment of honorary pilot's wings. Mr. Churchill, despite his enthusiasm for aircraft, was, shall we say, less renowned for his personal piloting skills. But his keen eye for innovation and new opportunities had played a vital role in protecting the young service when it was at its most vulnerable immediately after the First World War. The service repaid that debt to him in 1940 when the nation was at its most vulnerable. In his response to the award of his wings, Mr. Churchill said, and I'm afraid you're going to have to imagine me sounding like Gary Oldman here, <laughs> at this moment, the RAF is the spear point of the British offensive against a proud, cruel enemy. As the world conflict deepens, the RAF's war future flows with a still brighter and fiercer light. I'm honoured to be accorded a place, albeit out of kindness, in that comradeship of the air which guards the life of our island and carries doom to the tyrants. I should simply add that we don't expect such fine oratory when we present our young pilots today with their uh, wings. 75 years and four days ago saw the formation of 617 Squadron, the Dam Busters, whose exploits and achievements remain legendary. But the squadron also confirmed that the RAF remained at the pinnacle of innovation, technology, industrial effort, and the precision of the time. This remains the case today. Four days ago, on its 75th anniversary, 617 Squadron started to reform as the UK's first F-35 Lightning Squadron, which we will proudly welcome back to the United Kingdom in a couple of months' time. And if you'll excuse me a small moment of personal indulgence, joining that powerful million-strong Air Force in 1943 was aircraftsman second-class Victor Hillier, my father, and the inspiration for me joining the Royal Air Force and indeed eventually for ending up here tonight. Moving on to 1968 and the 50th anniversary of the RAF, for this I'm indebted to the Royal Air Force Golden Jubilee Souvenir Book. In particular to Mr. John Taylor, who's editor of Jane's All the World Aircraft for three decades during the Cold War and a fellow of this society. Thank you, John, for your 1968 article, A Bold Assessment of the RAF's Next 50 Years. Pure gold dust. His article is a helpful reminder that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So his idea of acquiring militarized Concords armed with blue steel nuclear missiles didn't get far. <laughs> he was similarly off the mark with his advice not to wager a half crown on the swing wing design then being proposed by the British Aircraft Corporation getting beyond the drawing board. Today we call that proposal the tornado. As I speak, the tornado remains deployed overseas on live operations just as it has been continuously for the last 28 years in Syria, Iraq, 
many times, Afghanistan, Libya, and Kosovo. Just as it, will do, as it will do right up to its final days in RAF service next year, after 36 years of frontline duties. An impressive return on investment by any measure. Providing a powerful and constant demonstration of combat air power, flexibility, adaptability, and utility across the whole spectrum of conflict. Finally, we can perhaps forgive John's statement that it is difficult to foresee a time when anything other than a piloted aeroplane can provide support for surface battles. It was indeed difficult to foresee then capabilities such as the RAF's Reaper Force, providing a highly persistent and potent ISR and strike unmanned capability now. And it's one of the fastest growing parts of the future front line of the Royal Air Force as we prepare to introduce the even more capable Protector program. But I must not be too harsh on Mr. Taylor, for he was right about the growing importance of space to the RAF. And while I was delighted to announce at the start of this month the UK's first military low-Earth orbit satellite imaging capability, I suspect John would have been disappointed that we hadn't done more by now. We rely on space more than ever for our national security and prosperity, to a degree completely unknown in 1968 but we still tend to see it as a free good. In an era when the global networks we rely on are being challenged by Russia and other states, space operations have become an increasingly important part of RAF business, as natural an operating domain for our men and women as the skies and cyberspace are already. So we're growing our space situational awareness, resilience and command and control capabilities, ensuring that freedom of operation is available to all joint users of space, in an increasingly complex and contested domain. John was right too about the growing importance of missiles, testified not least by the over 3,700 precision munitions which the RAF has now employed over the last three and a half years in engaging Daesh, in engaging Daesh striking potential terrorist threats to the UK at range. And he was right too in saying that if we in Britain do not soon begin thinking and planning for the future, we may well find that we shall have no aircraft industry left. I know that everyone here this evening warmly welcomes the combat air strategy launched by the Defence Secretary last month, ensuring that we secure the future of our leading edge capabilities and making a major contribution to national skills and prosperity. And finally, John's closing words could not have been more right. He said, the one certainty is that whatever it is asked to do in its next 50 years, the RAF will do it with the same efficiency and success that have become traditional in its first 50. I believe the record speaks for itself. So what then of the RAF's 75th anniversary? Well, for those who were there on the ground at Marham on the day, um, I hope you finally managed to dry out. Surely the weather for our big parade and fly past over London on the 10th of July will be better. <laughs> what else can I say about how the RAF looked on that day? A service in the process of evolving from one which had been focused on the state-based threats of the Cold War to one developing its expeditionary capabilities, its I-Star, its air mobility, and its ability to deliver sustained, precise effects at range. The evidence of our success in ex executing that evolution is obvious. It's the sort of success which gives me confidence that we will continue to evolve and adapt into the future. 
What we didn't expect then is the return of potential state-based conflict and threats from Russia. Military-grade nerve agent being used for attempted murder on the streets of our country. The reckless and indiscriminate bombings of civilians in Syria. The illegal annexation of Crimea, Crimea, the first time since the Second World War that one sovereign nation has forcibly annexed territory from another in Europe. The criminal activities of the Russian state in cyberspace. The post-war consensus that has provided the basis for the rules-based international order is being challenged and undermined. We must respect, respond collectively with our NATO and other partners to counter hostile acts by Russia against our country, our interests, and our values. The RAF is at the forefront of that effort. Just one example, in January, we recovered our air defense radar capability in the Shetland Islands, allowing us to safeguard better the airspace to our north. Our air defenses remain on constant alert in the UK and indeed in the Falkland Islands, responding to threats from states or international terrorism. We regularly deploy our typhoons across the breadth of NATO's flanks, from Estonia to Romania. In the last year alone, our typhoons have been scrambled 42 times to intercept potentially hostile aircraft, keeping our skies safe. Which brings me then to the RAF of today, the Royal Air Force at 100. How do we mark this enormously significant milestone? We have three themes, commemorate, celebrate, and inspire. We're going to commemorate the precious legacy of extraordinary success, achievement, and sacrifice that is at the heart of the tradition and ethos of our service, something which continues to inspire everyone in the RAF today. We will celebrate the skill, professionalism, and achievement of the people in today's Royal Air Force, airborne every hour of every day, airborne right now, and with some of our people in harm's way, protecting the United Kingdom's interests at home and abroad. We are currently busier than we've been for at least a generation, in the middle of our most sustained period of high-intensity war-fighting operations since the Second World War. From fighting Daesh in Iraq and Syria to defending the skies of the UK, from operations with NATO in Europe and in Afghanistan to operations in Africa with our European allies, to disaster relief in the Caribbean following Hurricane Irma with our amazing, our amazing air transport capabilities. Currently, 13 operations in 21 countries on five continents. We have an outstanding record of responding quickly, successfully, and in force to emerging crises, deploying and sustaining aircraft and support capabilities at considerable range. But perhaps most importantly of all, we will aim through RAF 100 to build upon something we've always done, inspiring young people and future generations. Our focus has always been on the future, and the legacy of RAF 100 must be to build a launch pad for flight into our second century. So we aim to ignite young people's passion for air, space, and cyber through science, technology, engineering, art and design, mathematics, programs, and institutions, reaching out to students from all backgrounds, demonstrating that we remain a dynamic engine of social mobility where everyone can fulfill their true potential. That's always been at the heart of the spirit, ethos, and character of the service. 
From the very start, the RAF was conceived and regarded as different to the other services. The founding members of the RAF were pioneers, exploiting a new environment and at the cutting edge of innovation and the latest technology of the day. The Sopwith Camel wasn't a string bag in its day. It was their Typhoon, or their F-35. The new service sought out talented, innovative, and ambitious men and women who had potential to be unlocked through training and development. With so much talent at all levels, it was also a service with a less hierarchical, less deferential outlook on life, one where every individual was valued and judged on merit alone. It's a principle which continues to be our very essence as an organization today. We aim to inspire partly, as you would expect, to help us to continue attracting people towards a career in the RAF. But it's more than that, much more. The RAF has a long-established youth and STEM program and has always benefited from similarly long-established partnerships with academia, industry and professional bodies, not least this society. We're building on that so RAF 100 can offer the largest program of STEM-focused youth engagement ever undertaken by the military. We will invest over £2 million, largely of LIBOR fines granted by the Chancellor, in a variety of resources and engagement activity. We aim to reach 2 million students and their teachers in every corner of the UK, providing free educational support in subjects crucial to future workforce sustainability within an RAF context. A programme which aims to reach all, regardless of ethnicity, gender or social disadvantage. A programme which connects and complements related in initiatives such as the Year of the Engineer. So our ambition is high as we aim to use RAF 100 to inspire young people, to encourage them to seize opportunities and realise their potential in whatever field they wish to progress in the future. Because as we recognise we do that, so much of the, on the, we depend on the skills and talents of wider industry and society. That is why we will also promote through RAF 100 the importance of our aerospace and technological industries, whose support is as vital to our operational effectiveness today as it was in 1918 and as it will be into our future. So what of that future? I do, of course, need to be careful here. It was Churchill, again, who said that it's always wise to look ahead, but difficult to look farther than you can see. So in this concluding part of my talk, I shall try to be wise and describe the direction of travel for the RAF at the start of our second century, but not the destination. Our strategy to deliver the next generation Air Force is simple. Focus on our people, deliver on operations, grow our front line. We need to grow capability, people as well as equipment, to give us greater capacity and resilience to deal with the consistently high operational demand. Like managing a Sentinel ISR force that has spent 1,007 days continuously deployed in operations in the Middle East, providing up to 40% of coalition wide area surveillance. Or a Reaper force which has now passed 100,000 operational flying hours. Or a Shadow force which in its 10-year history has only spent a couple of months not deployed on operations. We also need to grow capability to fill pressing gaps, such as will happen uh, next year when we introduce the P-8 uh, Poseidon maritime patrol capability, working together with the Royal Navy 
to deal with a growing submarine and surface warfare threat. Growing capabilities such as are happening also as we expand our space capabilities. But we also need to grow capability to allow us to operate and succeed in increasingly contested airspace. There still remains too much military thinking, the belief that control of the air and of space can be an assumed condition for interventions. The world is not only changing, it has changed. Our strengths in the air have been well and truly spotted by our potential adversaries. We need to get used to the idea that in any future uh, conflict, control of the air will have to be fought for, and air power, in fact all joint effects, will have to be delivered in this contested environment. That's what makes the introduction of the F-35 Lightning so important. It's also the factor that needs to shape the development of the rest of our future air and space power capabilities. Success in this complex and contested environment will require a step change in our thinking and capabilities in relation to space, information warfare and command and control. Key themes for me in the current modernizing defense program. We need to transform into a, a networked next generation air force. One which recognizes information as its lifeblood, integrated across the air, space, and cyber domains. The RAF needs to embrace and exploit the opportunities of artificial intelligence, new human-machine interfaces, more unmanned and autonomous systems, more remote operation, more disruptive technologies, recognizing that most of this now must depend on our ability to exploit commercial opportunities. The question is now far less one of how do we conceive of the technology needed to meet our military needs, more one of how do we transform our organization and ways of warfare to grasp the opportunities of others' new technologies. If I was to pick out a single theme from all of this, it is pace, the importance of time. No longer can we afford the luxury of extended reaction times to deal with changing strategic environments, they've already changed. No longer can we accept long gestation periods for new equipment. The typhoon is brilliant, but it's more than three decades since conception. No longer can we acquire our information capabilities using processes where even defining the requirement currently takes longer than a Moore's Law cycle, condemning us to falling ever further behind. No longer can we accept that better technology can only come at ever greater cost. It's not what happens when I buy a new tablet or a new car, so why can't I have greater military capability at lower real terms cost in an information-enabled Air Force? So no longer can I accept that if I want the next generation of combat aircraft capability, and I do, then the only way to make that affordable is to do as before and trade down numbers of platforms. They're already at too low a level with too little resilience left or somehow that we should go for lower-spec technology to gain mass. Dumbed-down solutions aren't the answer to, to deterring, and, if necessary, defeating our increasingly high-tech adversaries. I want complex technology which gives me the decisive edge, and I want mass. Can we to get, do it together? Yes, I believe we can. If we go about our business in the right way, from how we set our requirements through to how our industry partners deliver. Let me offer some examples. I mentioned earlier the Carbonite 2 satellite we launched in January 
a capability demonstrator using commercially off-the-shelf small-site satellite technology to give us our first space-based full-motion video capability, potentially the first of a constellation of small satellites. Just eight months from concept to launch for just four and a half million pounds. I mentioned the resighting of an air defence radar on the Shetland Islands, a £10 million infrastructure project, six months from decision to operational capability. A reminder that bringing all of our working and living accommodation and infrastructure up to next generation standard is one of our most pressing current issues. Or the Bright Cloud project, a drinks can sized expendable decoy now ready for deployment on Tornado and easily adaptable for other platforms. A combined RAF, DSTL and industry project delivering a world first of this new form of radar-defeating protective technology. Or an environment-sensing chip, bought off the internet for $50 and offering the potential to dramatically increase the air carriage hours limits of our weapons, saving millions. The Royal Air Force's Rapid Capability Office is also delivering the future Combat Air System Technology Initiative Programme announced in the 2015 SDSR. A portfolio of activities spanning platforms, propulsion, avionics, weapons and information capabilities, which will keep the UK at the forefront of global combat air technology development. In collaboration with UK industry, now under the name Team Tempest, we are leading in a broad range of technology areas and concepts, including open mission systems architecture, international collaboration and other national projects. None of this happens without the people in the RAF, whether in the regulars or reserves, contractors, civil servants, or the wider RAF family. As others increasingly seek to match our technological edge, our people will continue to give us our decisive operational edge. They are magnificent across the board, and I'm committed to focusing on them to ensure we have the thinking, adaptability, skill, and spirit supported by modern, flexible manpower systems needed by the next generation Air Force. In recruiting and retaining the high quality people that we need, we face stiff competition from a booming technology-based employment market. But we have great appeal too, and our RAF 100 program gives us a unique opportunity to communicate the great attractiveness and reward of service in the Royal Air Force. We've just had our best recruiting year for eight years, against the highest target for eight years attracting from across society. People want to come to the Royal Air Force because they see us for what we are, an organisation of people who thrive on excitement, opportunity and challenge, an organisation based on merit alone that trains and encourages them to realise their full potential. We are the largest employer of aerospace apprentices in the country with 2,700 young people under training and an enviable completion rate of 97% compared with a national average of around 65%. I was therefore immensely proud when in January the Royal Air Force was recognised as the Macro Employer of the Year and the National Apprenticeship Awards. I'm certain that Lord Trenchard would be very pleased and proud to know that 100 years on from the service's formation, we are still sustaining and celebrating the achievements of one of his proudest legacies, the RAF Apprentices. And as we look beyond this year, one of its legacies will be that we are embarking on a centennial reset of Lord Tranchard's vision 
of training and educational excellence. From new scholarships and bursaries to exciting new partnerships with the private sector to a single point of entry for all recruits at the RAF College Cranwell. Bearing his name, the Trenchard Group will be a federated training and education system across the RAF, fit for the 21st century and supporting everyone from Air Cadet to Air Marshal. Ladies and gentlemen, the Royal Air Force stands on the brink of its centenary. We look forward to our second century with pride in what we have already achieved and with confidence about our future and, the and on the enduring importance of air and space power. As we enter that second century, we are transforming into a next generation Air Force, an integrated and inherently joint Air Force that recognizes information as its lifeblood, digitally enabled, able to respond more rapidly and with ever greater agility to changing threats able to fuse activity across the air, space, and cyber domains, embracing new technologies. With outstanding men and women keeping us at the leading edge of air, space, and cyber power, defending the nation and protecting our interests across the world. And through RAF 100, aiming to inspire future generations of women and men to be ambitious, seize opportunity, and realize their potential. At the start of my talk, I spoke of those visionaries who believed that air power could become decisive in warfare, that air power could only be properly be exploited within a unified and independent air force, and that safeguarding the future of that air force required the establishment of enduring institutions, training, uh, traditions, and ethos. The last 100 years has proved their beliefs right in every respect. Today's Royal Air Force has the privilege of being the latest owners of that proud inheritance. We will secure success for our next 100 years by inspiring our people now and in the coming generations. If we meet that challenge, and I am sure we will, then we will have guarded our inheritance well. Such that in 2118, after a second century of achievement and success, our successors will look back to us and say, they too, left us a legacy of which we are proud. Thank you very much indeed.